You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, friends. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee, the podcast of the Bridge KC weekend teaching messages, I guess. I, th- I thought I had a cool way of saying that when I started, and it just completely fell apart in the mid-sentence. You understand what I'm saying. We take the teaching from the bridge on Sunday mornings, and we podcast it with a short little intro, which you are now being subject to. Hey, if you listen to the podcast, we would love to know who you are. It's the craziest thing to us. We just don't know who you are or where you are. Maybe we know you. Maybe we don't. Maybe drop me an email, randy at thebridgekc.church. Say, hey, I'm listening, just so you know. That'd be great. Also, if you'd like to kind of keep in uh, sync with what's going on on a week-to-week basis with The Bridge, uh, prayer meetings, um, other things like that, you can go to thebridgekc.church near the bottom. There is a little form you can fill out, hit enter, and we will send you an email once a week saying, hey, this is what we're up to, this is how to connect with us. And it also helps us to know who you are and how we can better meet your needs or or, uh, minister to you. On the same page, there's also a donate button. If you would like to give, you'd be uh, welcome to do that. But mostly, we just are curious who's out there, and uh, and we are glad that you are. This week, we are diving into part two of our series on 1 John. Uh, so we're in chapter two because we are committed to making this a five-week series, five chapters, five weeks. I believe there are people that have an over and under bet in Vegas on whether or not I can do five weeks or I'm going to do seven. But we are on pace for five. And here is week two. Welcome to week two of our series on 1 John. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 2, and we are going to dive right in on there and, um, and go for it. Glad to have you with us. 1 John chapter 2. Uh, I've committed to make this a five-part series, and this was the week I knew it was going to be rough because of this chapter. You know what a Rube Goldberg machine is? You know what I mean? It's like you pull a lever and then a ball falls and then it knocks over a domino and it, you know, it's like 19 different levels and you never know if it's going to work. By Friday, I had, a, I had like assembled a Rube Goldberg sermon. Like it had so many moving parts and like everything had his, and I looked at it and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. So Friday, I, I did a bunch of editing because in addition to teaching what I want to teach, I wanted to share a dream that I had that I didn't really see how it tied in until I kind of cut out all the pieces that I didn't need. I had a brief encounter with the Lord that I want to share, not because I want to share every time I have a dream or every time the Lord touches me like that, but because I believe it actually involves many of you. Or at least I think it's an invitation from the Lord to many of you. For an omnipotent being, the Lord is very unassuming. When he lays out his plan, he does not assume you're going to get in. He invites you into it. He allows you to opt in to what he wants to do. And it really rests on our yes. When you look back at your life, the times the the Lord has moved the most strongly or the most dramatically, he probably had your yes on the table before that happened. He moves on our yes. And so I just want you to ponder what it means for us to say yes to all this. Monday night, January 3rd, I went to bed, and I went to bed with a very sober heart. I had ended the year doing some journaling and realizing that Boy, I'd spent a lot of time the last two years thinking about my own thoughts and my own feelings and what I was going through. And I I actually wrote, Lord, 2022 has got to be a lot less about me. 
Like, I just, I don't want to live in my head like I have for the past two years. I've thought more about my own thoughts and my own feelings in the last two years than I did probably in the previous 52. Like, I just don't remember thinking that much about what am I thinking until these last two years. And so I was saying, Lord, I want to get out of that. I want to think beyond that. I really want vision. And that night, I went to sleep, and I dreamt I was with a young man named Jacob Ebersole. Now, you don't know Jacob. He's never been here. Uh, Jacob works for what used to be the Reinhardt Bonnke organization that does massive crusades around the world. He's a young man. I'd say he's in his early 30s. He was a youth pastor in Appalachia that discovered that he could do chapel services in the prisons. And so he would go to the prisons, and he just saw tons of people in prison getting saved. And he just got a bug for evangelism. He eventually left his youth pastor role and uh, moved to Florida, began to work with Reinhard Bonnke and, and that organization. Last year, Jacob, in Africa, led 44,000 people to the Lord. Young guy in his 30s. And in this dream, I'm with Jacob, who I don't know well. I've only talked to him a couple of times. But he's taking me. We're flying to St. Louis, where I know I'm going to get a heart transplant. And I know in the dream, you know how it is in a dream, like how does this all fit together, but you know. I know in the dream that the heart transplant is for a heart for evangelism. Like that's what the whole thing's about. So I wake up and I told Kelsey, I said, boy, the Lord's doing something. I, I don't know what, I don't know how to, how to put this all together. So Monday evening, Kelsey and I and the Jackmans spent the evening with Lou Engle. Lou is in town and Lou is at a sweet spot in life where he is reflecting a little bit on those who he's raised up, and he's looking at those who are doing things that they would not have done had he not have been an influence in their life. And his heart is just so tender towards that thing. And we're talking about that and talking about how to connect with some of those folks and how to honor some of those folks and him really give a father's blessing to those people. And we start talking dreams. Lou is a dreamer. He wants, he's excited about his dreams. He's excited about your dreams. He just wants to hear all your dreams. So I tell him, I had this dream where I was going somewhere and I got a heart transplant for evangelism. Now, in my mind, the heart is the, you know, it's like the key point of the whole dream. I take the heart out of my chest and it's kind of a big deal. And, and he goes, where were you going? I said, well, St. Louis. He goes, how are you going there? Like, I, we were flying, I guess. He said, what do you think it means? I said, I, I don't totally know. He says, I think I do. So he relayed a story to me that I had heard before, but I never really put myself in it. He told me how in 2002, he was on day 31 of a 40-day fast. And in the dream, he had a dream at that point. In the dream, he was flying over California. He said, not in an airplane. I was like Superman. I'm flying over California. And he said, I am roaring in prayer, and I feel like I've got authority over California in prayer. He said, I knew that in fasting I had gained the freedom of flight and air supremacy to take authority over things in California. And I mean, that, that idea of air supremacy, that's World War II verbiage. The Third Reich lost Europe because we had air supremacy. So back to 2002, he wakes up for the dream, and the next day he has a flight from San Diego to St. Louis. He gets on the plane, and he looks out the plane window into the airport as they're taxiing away, and there's a mural of Charles Lindbergh on the wall of the, the airport. He didn't realize it's, it's Lindbergh Airport there in, in San Diego. And he's praying, and, he, and the Lord speaks to him as he flies. And, and he told him, 
You are St. Louis to me, Lou. And you are flying in the spirit of St. Louis. He said, you will raise up an air force of long-distance fasting flyers like Daniel in his 21-day fast that will shift principalities and powers over whole nations and will sweep the skies like no other generation, releasing the greatest harvest in history. Now I'm dreaming that I'm flying to St. Louis to get a heart transplant for evangelism. But the connection is fasting. Like, that's how we get this thing. I believe that I really am part of the fulfillment. I'm not the whole thing. I'm not, obviously, there are hundreds. But I think I'm part of what the fulfillment of this dream is. I find myself in Lou's 20-year-old dreams. Now, prophetic encounters like this, are, don't take them as promises. They're invitations. They are invitations for us to step into them. And I want to be faithful to this invitation as I can. And I'm going to extend it to you as well. I believe that we want to become long-distance flyers that have authority and, thing, and have authority over things that will lead to a great harvest and a, and a heart for evangelism. So not today. Don't panic. Your pot roast is safe. But soon. I think we are going to go into an extended fast. And I'm going to ask uh, you if you would join me in that in some fashion. You, you know me. I am uh, not a terribly religious person, and I am unbelievably unreligious about fasting. You, you do it how the Lord speaks to you about it. But um, I think we're going to step into this soon, and I think it is unto more than just nearness to Jesus, which is a worthy goal to do it for. I believe it's unto a heart transplant for evangelism for the bridge. So... All that to say, I tried to fit that into my Rube Goldberg sermon, and I didn't know how it fit until I cut out a bunch of pieces, and by the time I get to the end, I think you'll go, eh, kind of fit, maybe, I don't know. First John. We learned last week four things about First John that we want to keep in mind. It's Johannine, meaning it is written by John, the John who wrote the Gospel of John, the John who wrote Revelation, writes First, Second, and Third John. It is also written last in chronological order. It was written after the book of Revelation. Just because they're moved around in there doesn't mean that that's the order they're written in. Let me let you in on a little secret. The maps in the middle, those aren't divine. Okay, I mean, there's, there's things that you look at your Bible, it's not exactly as it happened. So there, it's Johannine, it's last, it is circular. He speaks in a circular manner. We'll notice that this week a lot, which is why you can't go verse by verse very well teaching 1 John. Because he teaches it, goes back, teaches something else, goes back, and uh, just kind of talks like your grandpa does. He is circular. Finally, it stands alone. First, second, and third John are not a series. Uh, second and third John are written to individuals. First John is a general epistle written to everyone. So they lumped them together, but that first, second, and third John, the, the names were added later. This is a standalone book. And in first John, John draws great distinctions in chapter 1, we talked about him writing this, this distinction between light and darkness, how walking in the light of the, his word was different than walking in darkness. And there is a strong distinction in chapter 2 that is deeply ap applicable to each of our lives, and even applicable probably in this dream that I had. Before we get to that, a couple of things you need to know out of John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 2. And I just pulled these out again because of his circular writing style. It's a little hard to go verse by verse. First thing you need to know, John writes to believers all along their journey. He's writing to people that are all over the map when it comes to knowing Jesus. 
Uh, verse 1, I think he talks to, about little children. Verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children. Verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, young men. He says it again in verse 14. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, young men. You say, what is, what is the point? He is speaking to everyone in the body of Christ right here. And he explains in each situation why he writes to them. But I think the more notable and applicable point is he is, he is giving them all the same information. You've been saved a week? Okay, this is what I'm going to tell you. You've been saved 20 years? Okay, this is what I'm going to tell you. He gives them all the same message, whether they're young or whether they're old. Now, some would think that Paul describes a bit of a different dynamic when it comes to feeding believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 and 2. Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. Paul seems to draw a distinction between those who are babies in Christ and those who are a little more experienced. John says, no, I'm, I'm talking to all of you all at once. About Paul's perspective there, I think we have thought about this a little bit the wrong way. And I think with good intention, people have fed people milk longer than they needed it. A misunderstanding of what he is saying here has contributed to sending the church in America down a rabbit hole for about 40 years. And let me just give you a little, little context for this. Uh, Mid-1970s, two guys start a church in Chicago. Dave Humble and Bill Hybels. Hybels is a phenomenal leader over the years, has had some struggles in, in recent years, but for the bulk of his ministry, really tremendous leader. They started this little church in the 70s in Chicago with this noble idea that the church did not need to look like it looked for their parents or grandparents. So they started Willow Creek, which they would have called a church for people who are unchurched. They had a tremendous impact in Chicago. At one point, 25,000 people a weekend would gather, and they influenced thousands of churches across the U.S. with this model that they called seeker sensitivity. And the thought was, people coming to us are babies in Christ, or they're unbelievers, so we're going to give them milk. And we're going to continue to give them milk. And it drew tons of people. The difficulty is, whatever you do to draw people, you have to continue to do to keep people. And literally, thousands of churches were started with this model of seeker sensitivity, and really, who's against that? If someone is seeking, do you want to be seeker insensitive? You don't want to, I mean, you know, you want to be welcoming to people. But the idea morphed into believing that you couldn't give people meat, you could only give them milk, and those congregations, some of them, served milk every Sunday morning for decades. In the early 2000s, Willow Creek commissioned an independent study. They brought in a, a consultant and said, examine what we are producing here and tell us if we're actually hitting the mark. And after studying 20 different metrics and meeting people who've been in the church for decades, the consultant sat down with them and said, it's a nice thing you have going here, but you're really not producing disciples. You're actually not building what you set out to build, and it's largely because you have based it on the idea of just giving them milk. Now, to their credit, Willow Creek went public with the, with the findings. They actually stood up and said, we've been doing this for 20 years. It's not working. We've got to do something different. John seems to address spiritual children, young people, and old people with the same message. Was Paul feeding new believers milk because he disagreed with John? 
Like, is, is there a conflict here? Paul's going, no, no, you got to give him milk. John, John's like, nah, I just teach to everybody. No, I don't think there was a conflict. If you read a little bit further in 1 Corinthians, you realize the babies that Paul is speaking of. 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. You are still of the flesh. While there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. They were babies in Christ, not chronologically, but developmentally. They, they were babies in Christ, not just because they had just been saved, but because they had resisted growth. Now, when you have a baby, those of you who don't, haven't, haven't had one yet, you understand? When you have a baby, when you get the baby, it's a baby. Okay? As profound as that is. It, it, it's a baby. It doesn't stay a baby. It grows. Paul is saying, I'm calling you babies because you are still carnal and you haven't grown. And so you can't even take what I'm trying to tell you. Paul never hesitated to share the deep things of God with young believers. If you go to, uh, don't go there, we'll, we'll come back to First John in a minute. But it, it, Acts 17, he goes to Thessalonica. He's only there three days, just long enough to make people mad. He makes people mad, wins some people to Jesus, and he leaves. But there was a long, enough of a uh, core group there that later he sent Timothy back to them. When Paul sat down to write 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he's remembering he was only there three days. These, if there are ever babies in Christ, these are them. What does he write to these people that are so tender and don't, don't know much about the Lord? Does he give them a message about, you know, three keys to a happy life? Does he give them the, these milk messages? No. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians? All about the end times. They're all about eschatology. He goes, yeah, we know you're new believers, but you're going to need to know this. Paul would have agreed with John. Say, how does this matter to the bridge? Because I believe, like John, that sincere people at all stages of maturity can understand the word and digest it and grow from it. I love young adult churches. I love churches that are more established. I love uh, churches that cater to people like me, you know, in my, entering into my mid-50s. I love all of it, but the, the best picture of the church and the healthiest church there is is multi-generational. It is people all along the spectrum hearing the same message and interpreting it together and helping one another and growing together. Intergenerational churches are not the fastest growing, but they are the strongest ones and they grow the deepest roots. So John writes to believers all along their journey. Second thing is John, here we are, he's an old man now. He's in his 90s. He still looks back at Jesus as life-changing. Remember, he wrote this following writing the book of Revelation. So he's off of the island of Patmos. He's had an encounter. He has seen the heavens open, the seals, the bowls, the trumpets. He saw the martyrs. He saw the lamb that was worthy to be slain. He saw the dragon. He's, he's seen all of the things that happen at the end. So when he sits down to write, what does he write in 1 John? Chapter 2, verse 7. He says, Behold, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's talking about Jesus there. We see his circular style. You're like, John, is this an old commandment or a new commandment? You're telling me, you're telling, me, telling us a new commandment, but it's an old commandment, but it's not old to you. What, what is this? It was new in that it was Jesus, it was old in that he had taught them this before. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 34, 
Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that if you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. He says, I'm writing to you about love, and it's all about Jesus. Back to 1 John, he notes achieving this commandment, to love one another as he loved us, that all of it is possible because of one thing. The light of Jesus had come into the world, and when light enters the room, darkness has to flee. He says, now you can see things you didn't see before, and because you have my love in you, you can love other people like you couldn't love before. Can an unbeliever be a good person and love others? Yes. I believe that. I believe unbelievers love their children. I believe that they love others. Can they love sacrificially in the way that Jesus loved? No. Because that takes walking in the light to do so. When the light of Jesus invades your life, you're capable of levels of love that were previously impossible. And a display of grace to others, even those that hurt you or do you wrong, that you would not be capable to love any other way. Show this picture. This is Richard Houston and one of his daughters. Richard was a remarkable man. He was a police officer in Mesquite, Texas. He was married, had three girls. And about six weeks ago, he responded to a disturbance at a strip mall. When he got there, an offender shot him three times and killed him. The individual who shot him went on to, take, or to try and take his own life. Now, Richard was a remarkable man. He'd served for 21 years as a police officer. He'd had multiple awards. He got 48 letters of commendation in 21 years. But one of the most impressive things to me was the assistant police chief said about Richard, Richard didn't just go to church. Richard walked with God. You can imagine the pain at this man's funeral. A police officer lays in a coffin. His wife and three daughters sitting there listening. The man who took the police officer's life is try, tried to take his own life, is across town in a hospital bed. And his 18-year-old daughter, Shelby, asked to speak at his funeral. And in a profound display of revolutionary love that only comes from knowing Jesus, she spoke about how tragic her loss was, yet her heart was tender towards the man who had shot her father to the point that she said she was glad that he had survived. While speaking at her father's funeral, she said this, All I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live. My prayer is that someday down the road, I get to spend time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, Simply to tell him about Jesus. That is not natural. That, like, nobody musters that up. That is the divine love of God in the heart of another individual. And he, John says, when you love that way, that's when you truly, truly know me. He said, Jesus is life-changing. He can do that to you. So John writes to everybody in the journey, Jesus is life-changing. The third thing you need to know about this chapter is John is still talking about light, okay? He's circled back around about light. Last week, he spoke about the contrast of walking in the darkness and walking in the light, and he comes up again. He speaks of the effect that light should have in the heart of, an un or of a believer and how it manifests in love. 
When you think of a believer, when you think of a strong believer, what do you think should follow that person? Some of you go, well, signs, wonders, spiritual gifts. All true. But the mark of a man or a woman who walks with Jesus is their ability to love people supernaturally. To look past the pain, to look past the hurt, to look past what you did to me and love you. That's the mark of a believer. 1 John chapter 2, 9 to 11. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, so all of that was a ramp up. I told you it was a bit of a Rube Goldberg sermon. All of that was up the ramp to the contrast that he draws very soon here. When I, when I teach, a couple of things that I think about is I want to think about what do I want people to learn, what do I want them to feel, and what do I want them to do? I'm going to ruin it for you right now. I'm just going to tell you what I want you to feel and learn and do. I want you to learn that John measures your walk with Jesus by your love for others. He measures your walk with Jesus by your love for others. Some of you are going, I was kind of hoping it would be how many worship songs that I listen to. I was kind of hoping it would be something different. But that's how he measures your walk with Jesus. This is what I want you to feel. In light of that, how does my walk measure up? Like, now that I know that, and I'm already thinking of the person that is very hard to love, how do I measure up? What do I want you to do? I want to encourage you to separate yourself from the things that distinguish, distinguish love or extinguish love. We'll talk about this in a minute. So here's what he tells you to do. This is the contrast that he draws in chapter 2. Remember, John does this five times in five chapters. Here's the contrast. Love for the world and the love of the Father. I want to read this again, but pay close attention to the wording because you're going to think I'm splitting hairs here, but I'm not. Love for the world and love for the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, don't confuse this, okay? It's not, do you love the world or do you love the Father? That's not, that's not the distinction he's drawing. That's the one we've always thought is, do I love the world more than I love God? That's not what he's, he's saying. Love for the world and the, or the love of the Father being in you. You can love the world and still have a measure of affection for God. You really can. That's why some people can live like the devil six days a week, come to church, and actually feel touched by the Lord. Because it's possible to, to walk that balance. Not easy, but you can do it. But if you love the world, you can't love like God loves. That's the distinction. It's not do I love the world or do I love him. It's if I love the world, I can't love others like he loves me. Do you see the difference? It's, it's a, it feels like splitting hairs until you think about it. It's not, do I choose the world or do I choose God? It's, do I choose the world, and if I do, I lose the ability to love other people the way he loves people. What is loving the world? He's not talking about trees and rocks and nature. He's talking about the system of the world that works within to challenge the authority of God by asserting the idea that we can take care of ourselves. 
To love the world is to walk in such a way is that you believe that you are fully capable of taking care of yourself. You love this worldly system. You love this idea of every man for himself. You think you can win that game. It's not about shiny cars and big houses. It's about you fighting for control of your own life to get the things that you want. We see the system of the world in kids, okay? Now, I realize if you have one child, that child is, is an angel that came directly from the Lord, and you struggle with ideas of, like, original sin. When you have a second child, you realize man is born fallen because those two kids will do things to each other that one would have never done to mom and dad, okay? You do not struggle with the idea of the depravity of man if you have children, because they do things, you're like, I did not teach them that. I never once have thrown a wood block at the head of anybody in my house. But your kids will do it. In adults, it is insisting that we can take care of ourselves and we don't need God to help us make decisions or get involved in our lives. It's resisting his leadership is actually the system of the world. Not too far into written human history, perhaps within memory of the flood, not too far in the back of their minds, men undertook the first group self-preservation project or the first demonstration of the system of the world. Genesis 11, they are building a tower that we know as the Tower of Babel. And they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. Let's take care of ourselves in a way that we don't trust God to take care of us. There are some scholars that believe that that tower was built in part in case God ever decided to flood the earth again. Let's defend ourselves and do something so we don't need his help and all we need is ourselves. It was the ultimate self-preservation, I am responsible for myself, way of the world project. We love the systems of the world, the self-promotion, get what we can, look out for ourselves, but the systems of the world never really prepare us in ways that we need. Chuck Guzik is a pastor of a Calvary Chapel church in, I think, Costa Mesa, California. He's a great writer, writes a great online commentary that's super easy to read. And he describes it this way. He says, the world's progress Technology, government, and organization can make man better off, but not better. You can make yourself a little better off, but you can't make yourself better. There are people who have made themselves very well off that are not good, because they don't have the power to do that. Jesus died not so that we could be better off, so that we could actually be right with his Father. And John suggests that the thing that stops us from taking in and reflecting the love of the Father is really the love of our own self-preservation. That idea that we've got to protect ourselves, we've got to look out for ourselves, it is the way of the world. And that way of the world keeps us from demonstrating the love of the Father. The love of the Father is described all through Scripture in almost every place. It's just you look at it and you're like, how do I achieve that? Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Our love at times, we feel like our love never ceases, but there are times you're like, I'm out of mercy. I'm done. Love of the Father is never out of mercy. Jeremiah 31.3 says, 
I have loved you with an everlasting love. His love goes on and on and on. And when we come to know him, he gives us the spiritual ability to reflect or replicate what we did not know existed minutes ago. Like suddenly we can express that to other people. We didn't even know it was a thing before. How do we do that? All we have to do is lay down our tendency to put ourselves first and take care of ourselves. And if that were easy, we wouldn't even need a sermon. I just email you. But it's difficult. Randy, are you saying that the love of God in my life is inhibited when I stand up for myself? Yeah, it really is. Well, what about that scripture that says the Lord helps those who help themselves? That's not in the Bible. It's really not. Somebody else said that. I'm not arguing for working hard, against working hard or taking good care of what God has given you. That's just good stewardship. What God is pressing back here against is the idea that we are the sole providers for ourselves. Because if we are, we don't need God. And if we don't need God, we don't get God. And then we're incapable of loving others the way he loves. Now, it's still hard to get our head around this fact that our love for the world is what holds us back from loving others like God loves us. Do you have any examples of what like, our self-preservation looks like? Strangely, yes. John goes on to describe love for the world, and he warns us about how it manifests itself. And he's super intentional about what he calls all that is in the world. In other words, this is the idea that the love of the world and self-preservation are really rooted in. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. He's like, that's what I'm talking about. The desire of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. What are these things? 1 John 2 is interesting in that it dovetails perfectly with the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness that are recorded in the other Gospels. John doesn't write about it. John, in the Gospel of John, does not lay out the, the temptation of Christ. Luke does. And so he takes these things and he, he kind of dovetails it with what he is saying. Had Jesus failed the test in the wilderness... Could he have represented his father to a broken world? Think about it. It would have altered the course of redemptive history. But he resisted the ways of the world, and he resisted this idea of self-preservation, and he put himself at the mercy of the father, and it gave him authority to reflect the love of the father to the rest of us. The desires of the flesh, that first one. During the 40 days in the wilderness, the devil comes to him in a moment of physical weakness. He's hungry. Those of you that have fasted, you know what this is like. You know when you're fasting, things you don't even like look good. Right? Like when you're fasting, you're like, you're looking at Brussels sprouts. Going, it's been a while, you know? So he is, he's fasting, he's physically weak, and the devil comes to him and suggests if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Problem solved. He attacks his identity, if you are the son of God. Well, yeah, of course he's the son of God. And then he, te he tests him with the lust of the flesh. He said it would feel good. It would meet your needs. Actually, it would probably be good for you. Jesus, you're looking a little pale. 
You don't look good. And Jesus stops him short and tells him, man will not live by bread alone. It wasn't that he didn't want the bread. It wasn't even that he didn't need the bread. It was that he wasn't going to draw his strength from that bread. It's like, no, 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 I'm going somewhere else. There are things in life that you honestly do need to exist. Nobody thought that Jesus should never eat bread again. It's not like the disciples two months later were like, hey, hey, get away from the sandwich. No, no, no. It wasn't that he was never going to eat bread. It was he's saying, I'm taking this time to say, I trust the Father, not the things that I know that I need. The real question was, how low was he willing to stoop to get it? And if that meant making a deal with the devil, he was not going to take it. This is the lust of the flesh. What are the allowable pleasures in your life that are becoming a strain on your relationship with Jesus because you are fixated on them? Most of you who have followed Jesus for years, if you ever wander away from him, will not go out in a blaze of glory. All right? It's not like you've served Jesus 30 years and all of a sudden you develop a crack addiction. Happens to some people, but not many. Most people who depart from their faith after decades don't do it at a 90 degree angle, they do it at two degrees. And they do it by self preservation. And they do it by taking things that are rightfully theirs, but getting consumed and fixated by them. And all of a sudden, you haven't seen that friend for 20 years, and you go visit them, and you realize their entire life has changed. You're like, what happened to you? I got distracted, and I just veered off. And most of those things that distract us are actually not sin. They just get in the way. I remember reading a book by John Eldridge, and him talking about wanting a backpack. If you don't know John Eldridge, he's a real... He man does all kinds of camping and, and retreats and whatnot. And so him getting a backpack was a big deal. And he realized that he'd gotten consumed. His wife asked him late in the week, how long have you been shopping for that backpack? And he realized that he had probably that week had about 20 hours into looking for that backpack. He said, I was so embarrassed. How did I lose 20 hours looking for, for a backpack of which nine different ones would work? It's getting attracted by things and it's just getting sucked in. Some of you are being reminded now of things. You go, oh man, I've spent way too much time on that. It's the lust of the flesh. He goes on to talk about the lust of the eyes, things that we find attractive that drive us. The desire of the eyes are things that we see that our heart is pulled towards. In Luke, the enemy knows that Jesus' heart is drawn to the nations. There's a passage in Psalm 2 where God turns to Jesus and says, ask of me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. So Jesus already got his eye on the nations, that those are going to be his. And in Luke 4, 5 and 6, the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. In typical satanic fashion, there's a little truth there, there's a few lies there. He said he didn't really have all of that authority, he had some, but the nations weren't him to, his to give. The enemy really doesn't have the power or authority to grant Jesus what God has promised to him. But that is the nature of temptation. He's always over-promising you things that he can't even fully deliver on. The desire of the eye isn't always for a new car, or a big house, sometimes it is for a prophetic word that you don't want to wait on God to deliver. Some of you have promises from the Lord that you have waited on, 
And doggone it, if you get a chance, you're going to make it happen. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because that is actually operating in the spirit of the world. Let him do it for you. Jesus is like, first of all, those aren't your nations to give. Second of all, I'm going to get them from my father. I'm not going to get them from you. Desire of the eyes, the desire of life. Things that will make me look better in the eyes of others. Those of you who say, I don't care what people think, you lie, you lie, you lie. At some level. Now, some people care more about what other people think, but everybody at some level cares what people think. Much of how we live and how we operate is out of response to the opinions of others rather than the facts before us. And the opinions of others will mess with your head. I took my girls to Goodwill the other day. We're checking out at Goodwill, my seventh graders, so I've got three seventh grader girls standing there. And the clerk looks and goes, are these your granddaughters? No. Now, I don't know that lady. I don't even know if I could find her again, but I've thought of her every day since. <laughs> the opinions of others weigh on you in such a way as they should not. Okay? Satan appeals to our base human desire, the desire to look good in front of others, and he actually does it in Luke 4 towards Jesus. Luke 4 9 and 10. He took him to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. It is a good thing Jesus was alone. Because I can almost hear Peter saying, you know, this could work. You know, everybody is wondering who you are. Jesus, if you were to jump off and the angels were, like this would play really well in the press. This would be good for public opinion. When you do something primarily based on public honor, public honor is the only reward that you will receive. That's what you get. And when you succumb to the pride of life, putting yourself in the best light possible in order to save face or to lift up your reputation, you end up discounting the one bit of true influence that you actually have, which is the love of the Father in you that can be reflected on others. Jesus did not need to subjugate himself to Satan to be exalted by the Father. He knew that if he was faithful, the Lord would take care of those things. I'm going to ask if Zion would come back. Rick's going to go back into worship for a few minutes. But conquering these three things the pride of life, the pride of flesh, the pride of the eyes, are what enable us to conquer our own love for the system of the world. We can get, if we can wrestle with those things, we realize the world doesn't have anything on us. And when we lay down our love for the world, suddenly we are free to reflect the love of God to those around us. We become a picture of who Jesus is to a lost world. You know, it's not that the lost don't want Jesus. It's that they, they look at his followers and they just don't see any difference. They say, why would, why would I sign up for that? We've got to be able to show them a love that is greater than we can muster in our own world. And doing that is actually the best investment we could make with our own lives. One last verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. 
and the world, that system of the world that we're all leaning on and how it all works, it is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I want to ask you to stand with me for a moment. As we go back into worship for a few minutes, ask him how you're doing. Say, Lord, I want a report card here. Am I wrestling with the ways of the world? Am I drawn to that at such a level that I am not able to love those in my life who are unlovely? Not your neighbor who you kind of like and you've known for a while. I'm talking about that person in your life who has caused you pain. Those are the ones that the Lord wants to empower us to love at the level that he loved. So Father, we come. We, we welcome you back again. We welcome you into this room. We ask that you would investigate our own hearts our ability to love, our draw to the world and our desire for self-preservation, God. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Let's worship. Lord, I'm desperate for you.
desire and our drive for self-preservation, for looking out for ourselves, for making sure we don't get taken advantage of. And we say we trust you. This morning, some of you, your, your heart was pricked. As the Lord brought people to mind that you struggle to love. And in the worldly system, you have every right to feel how you feel. You are justified, if that's the way you want to be justified. But there's something more. And he is inviting you to lay down that self-preservation in order to be able to reflect the love of the Father to unlovely people.